In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. We're both psychologists and this is a podcast all about psychology. I am a health psychologist. I work predominantly with medically unwell people. And Amy is a child psychologist and she works with children and adolescents with a focus on trauma. And we get together from time to time, somewhat randomly at the moment, uh, and apologies for the delay in episode. And we get together and we like to talk about a topic that is of interest to us and that we think that will be of interest to you and kind of really nerd out on the psychology behind it and also take time to explain some of the concepts and theories around psychological problems. The idea is to talk to you, the listener, in a way that psychologists would actually talk to themselves because we don't really believe in dumbing down psychology because we think it's really interesting and we think it's really, really useful. Today on the podcast, we've got a very, very interesting topic. This podcast may actually run a bit long. It's on dissociative identity disorder or better known as multiple personality disorder. It's a really, really fascinating disorder where people present with two or more different distinct personalities. Mm -hmm. And we're going to really, really get into all sorts of aspects around it. We're going to talk about the diagnostic criteria, some of the theories behind it, and we're going to look at how you may assess this in therapy. And we're going to also look at some of the research around it and also cover some of the basics of dissociation and things like that. So it's going to be a bit of a jam-packed show, but we hope that you'll be along for the ride with it. Just a little warning that today's episode contains some bad language, so if you've got little people around, maybe switch this one off for later. We also talk about trauma, so a bit of a trigger warning for people who this might be an issue for. So before we get started, Two Shrinks Pod would like to give a shout out to the podcast app, the number one podcast app on the App Store. It has a powerful podcast search function and it's combined with an easy to use interface. It's free and quick to download. It's also a lovely blue colour, Amy. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) And you also respond to any issues or problems quickly and timely. So once you've finished binge listening to all of Two Shrinks Pod through the podcast app, you can then go and search out other great podcasts to listen to. That's the podcast app, which you can get through the Apple App Store or Google Play. To give everyone a flavour of what this disorder looks like, we're going to talk about some pop culture examples before then we jump into more theory and diagnosis. So what comes to mind when you think about DID? Well, I think there's a lot of media portrayals mm-hmm. um, and reading some of the literature, they have generally been fairly inaccurate, sort of fairly sort of extreme flips of personality between different states and things like that. The pop culture example I wanted to talk about was Fight Club. Mm-hmm. If you've not seen Fight Club, skip forward a minute or a couple of minutes or two until I've stopped talking about it because that will be a bit of a spoiler. Mm. But Fight Club, there is a, a narrator, and that's played by Edward Norton, and he meets a character played by Brad Pitt called Tyler Durden. And Tyler Durden is this cool, sexy, anarchic guy, and the narrator, Edward Norton's character, is, you know, a bit depressed, he's suffering from narcolepsy, mm-hmm. and he's really, really unhappy and kind of a bit... And very conventional. And he's very, very trapped in his consumerist, materialistic lifestyle, and... 
at some point in the movie, his house is exploded, it's mm. destroyed, and he moves in with Tyler Durden in this sort of very run-down thing. And then through the course of this movie, they start these fight clubs where these men get together and box each other. And then at some point, Tyler disappears and the narrator starts to go looking for him and eventually they meet and then it becomes clear that Tyler Durden and the narrator are one and the same person. Answer me, why do people think that I'm you? I think you know. No, I don't. Yes, you do. Why would anyone possibly confuse you with me? Because we're the same person. That's right. Diagnostically, you say he's suffering from dissociative identity disorder. Mm. So it's, it's kind of a really interesting... It's a little bit inaccurate in that if you just take what's literal on the screen, there's no childhood trauma that's mm. obvious. And as we'll get to, childhood trauma is present in 95 to mm. 97% of people with DID from what, what we know. Mm. So you don't sort of see that, but I mean, they, I think the movie's sort of taking, taking this view that consumerism was so affecting this person, the trauma of it, it was that that was causing him to dissociate. And what's sort of accurate about it is that it talks about dissociation as like a coping mechanism. And at one point, Tyler Durden says, You were looking for a way to change your life. You could not do this on your own. All the ways you wish you could be, that's me. I look like you want to look, I fuck like you want to fuck, I am smart, I'm capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. Oh no, this is crazy. People do it every day. They talk to themselves, they see themselves as they'd like to be. They don't have the courage you have to just run with it. And I think that quote actually kind of captures the kind of a, a coping mechanism element of DID. Absolutely. It's also a really, really great film. So if you've not seen Fight Club, yeah. really go and check it out. Yeah. The one that I love is United States of Tara. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. That's got Tony Collette. Yes. She's amazing. It, yeah. it, it is amazing. I've watched it multiple times all the way through. Each time they released a new season, I then watched from the start all the way through. Again, I think there's three seasons. It focuses on a woman named Tara. This is Tara, obviously. <clears throat> it's Thursday the 12th. Looks like I've got about four minutes or so. So I just want to explain where I'm at right now while I'm still lucid. Who has dissociative identity disorder. And then as the series goes on, it focuses on her, her two kids and her husband. And you gradually meet her alters. And you kind of gradually find out about how it is that they've come to be. Uh, the thing that I love about it is that it doesn't sugarcoat things, but it doesn't glorify things either. It's been a nice middle ground. A lot of it's focusing on the day-to-day -day kind of life of the family and what it's like for her family to live with someone who one day might be Tara, mm. who's an adult and an artist, and then the next day might be T, who's a 16-year-old. Tara and I were supposed to go to a pampered chef party tonight in Shawnee, but something tells me that my sister is in home tonight. Oh my God, you are so smart. I can't believe you never finished massage school. Who is this? I can't remember what this one is called. That's tea, like the letter, not the hot beverage. And then there's a male character. Buck, nice. Hey, uh, don't smoke in here, okay, man? I only smoke when I party. Well, this isn't a party. This is you. Hey, those are for Katie's dance recital, and she'd love to see you there. You're coming, right? Mm. 
No can do. As much as I want to see what Katie's friends look like in tights, I'm going shooting. The switches are quite amazing in terms of watching her posture and speech change and you can sort of see when it's about to come. And then it's great in terms of addressing the childhood trauma element of yep. things and how that could come to be. Yeah. So, yeah, highly recommend. So that sounds like it kind of gives a, a broader view of it. Whereas yeah. I think in Fight Club, it's very much from the central character's perspective. Yeah. And so, and then they kind of comment later on. It's like, you know, sometimes you're, you're me, sometimes you're watching me, and sometimes you're still you. Yeah. And uh, which is kind of interesting because, and we'll get to a bit later where the different people can be, have these different personality, personality states, and, but sort of still be aware mm. of or, or w- watching what's going on and things like that. Yeah. It's kind of quite interesting. Yeah. Shall we move on to the diagnostic side of things? Yep, sure. This disorder, a little bit like the one we spoke about last time, is quite rare. Uh, It's been found in 1.5% of the population and it's quite underdiagnosed. It's often assumed to be something else. People often end up with a bunch of different diagnoses before they end up with this one. A lot of the time it's because they present in different ways to different people and across different occasions. So it's pretty hard to notice the shifting patterns unless you spend enough time with someone. So the stats I had on prevalence is that, like you said, 1% mm-hmm. of the population have got DID. For dissociative disorders, I saw a prevalence range of 9 to 18% mm. of the population, which is quite high. Yeah, it is. Um, in psychiatric populations, the saw there was an average weighted prevalence of 19% and an average prevalence of 4%. Mm. So it gives you an idea. It's, it is rare. It is, yeah. yeah. In the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that psychologists use in Australia and around the world, but it's kind of a combination of that one and ICD-10, it's termed dissociative identity disorder. So this has changed over time. It used to be multiple personality disorder and then it shifted in the a couple of editions ago of the DSM. So to meet criteria for this disorder, there are five five different aspects. The first one is a disruption of identity characterized by two or more distinct personality states, which may be described in some cultures as an experience of possession. So the disruption in identity involves a marked discontinuity in sense of self and sense of agency, accompanied by related alterations in affect, behavior, consciousness, memory, perception, cognition, and or sensory motor functioning. And these signs and symptoms may be observed by others or reported by the individual. Second criteria is recurrent gaps in the recall of everyday events, important personal information and or traumatic events that are inconsistent with ordinary forgetting. The third is that the symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment, which is pretty much across the board for DSM diagnoses. Fourth is that it's not a normal part of a broadly accepted or cultural or religious practice. And in terms of if it's seen in children, it has to not be better explained by having an imaginary friend or fantasy kind of play. And the last thing is that, as with all DSM diagnoses pretty much, it can't be attributable to the effects of a substance or a medical condition. Yep. And that's it. There's not many for this one. No, well, I mean, it's pretty kind of clear, isn't it? It's mm. like it's sort of this disrupted 
personality state, really. Mm. I'm going to talk through a case study, which gives you a bit of a flavour of what this might look like for someone. This came from a paper which was in the Journal of American Psychiatric Nurses Association in 2017 by Urbina, May and Hastings. I've chopped out some chunks of the case study that they present for women that they worked with and hopefully it gives you a bit of a bit of a feel for it. Mm. Sarah is a 43-year-old highly educated female with an extensive history of childhood sexual, physical and emotional abuse who was admitted to an inpatient mental health unit after she attempted suicide after she had received a message from her past abuser that was particularly graphic and triggering. Sarah denied having any recollection of the events following exposure to the trigger but was adamant about her desire to end her life. She'd had a suicide attempt two years prior after a similar event and since that time she's been very high functioning with minimal to moderate depressive symptoms. She holds a master's degree, is a mother and wife and previously worked as a therapist for abused children. Prior to hospitalisation she had a strong connection to a psychiatrist. She'd been previously diagnosed with major depressive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder and factitious disorder. Sarah was open to discussing her depressive symptoms but guarded about her dissociation. The team's first indication that she may fall into the DID spectrum was an instance when the patient exhibited childlike behaviour and referred to herself as another name while seemingly experiencing a flashback. During the course of her inpatient therapy, the treatment team witnessed flashbacks and changes in Sarah's affect and personality, along with her own self-admitted lapses in memory during meetings and day-to-day interactions with other patients and staff. Through the course of her therapy, Sarah referred to herself as a total of five other names or alters, some of which showed deep animosity towards her primary or alter selves. The majority of the time, she appeared to be right-hand dominant. However, at times, most commonly after emotional interactions, there was a shift in her demeanour and affect, and she signed paperwork with different names and with the left hand. Wow. The handedness and writing style she used with each personality was consistent over time. Sarah admitted to previous episodes of lost time at work and with her family prior to experiencing the current trigger. These episodes occurred during routine daily activities and were diverse in nature. Her children found her wearing provocative outfits, she admitted to partaking in uncharacteristic actions she could not explain, and on occasion waking up hidden in a closet with no memory of how she got there. The lapses in memory were extremely disconcerting to Sarah and she admitted to feeling crazy and repeatedly asked the team if this was indeed true. Wow. So that really gives a flavour of some of the ins and outs. Mm. And also, like I think as an individual clinician, like I hear that and go... It doesn't make my blood run cold, but it certainly kind of makes me go, if that came up for me, mm. I I would be very much like, oh, wow, I really need to be very careful yeah. about what I do with this person, like how I treat Have you them. ever come across someone with... I've not come across it. Yeah. Um, I, I've known a couple of colleagues who have, and I think probably the main takeaway, because we didn't really... So, like... I've done, I did a doctorate mm. and I'm partway through a master's. So I've done a bit of study and I've never really been taught that much on it in no. a formal sense. The, no. Like preparing for this pod was the most. And, but I guess the main thing I always think about as an individual clinician is like, if, if I hear someone refer to themselves differently by name, mm. then I always check it out. Yeah. Um, and so, which is kind of interesting because I was working with a patient just recently and she'd labeled a uh, her critical 
negative voice mm. a different name. Interesting. And yeah. and it just like it made me kind of go, get a little uncomfortable because I was worried about like, am, are we doing something mm. that's going to unlock something or you know mm. what's going on or something? But that's probably about. That that's probably my experience with it. Yeah. In yourself, you've, uh, once you've I've come had across someone, it one time. Yeah, oddly enough, in my clinical training, which <laughs> you would not expect, and it was one of those things where because it's so rare, I kept on saying to my supervisor, "This can't possibly be what it is." You know, she she would show up with different outfits, different accents, different understanding of English, different history, and different memory of me yep. each time. And because it was so rare, I kept on doubting that that was the case. Mm. And then I was put in touch with a psychologist who had recently retired who specialised in this. And she gave me phone supervision about it and said, just stop right there, describe what's going on to me. And then gave me a whole bunch of, of ways of sussing it out. But it was quite jarring as a clinician because... Uh, it could be quite confrontational sometimes because she wouldn't remember what we'd discussed the previous time mm. or would be suspicious how I knew information and things like that. So wow. it really, each time it was kind of like, I'm not sure who I'm meeting today. Yep. I don't know if I've met them before. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So especially as a new clinician, it, it, it threw me. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. I can, yeah. She would have been amazed fourth adult client wow. ever. Wow. Yeah, yeah, you mean you've worked on with kids, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, but not with adults. <laughs> yeah, right. That's yeah. that's the deep end. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah, I'd not thought about how that would like knowing information. Because mm. because I was doing some reading by Bethany Brand, who's a big, big author in this area, big researcher in this area, mm. um, and writes very, very well. And she makes the point in one of her reviews, I'll put a link to it in the po- the, the show notes, around that dissociation and dissociative dissociation type stuff is present in a number of different disorders Mm. so like in post-traumatic stress disorder but also in borderline personality Mm. and people who've listened to this before know i'm a schema therapist like Mm. or i i I like working in the schema therapy modes and they you know one part of that is like looking at modes of being and like that's not dissimilar like you talk about an adult mode and a Mm. child mode and a and so it's kind of like internal family system stuff has a similar thing of looking at the different parts of you yeah and i feel like more and more there are multiple therapies that don't consider personality as a solid whole but as construct yeah yeah that it's it's different parts that come out in different ways or it's different modes or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And they all interplay to make us who we are. Yeah. We're yeah. not necessarily the entire same whole person in every setting. Yeah. And in There's some versions of us. Yeah. And, and in therapy, often what you are trying to get to do, depending on your approach, it might be to actually help people label, oh, you know, this is anxious hunter mm. and this is confident hunter and or this is self-critical hunter or mm. this is the hunter that doesn't want to get off the couch and yeah. this is the one that pushes himself too hard or whatever it might be mm. and and you're labeling it whereas this is we're making an analogy here but it's like a stream reverse of that which is it's like it's about someone, integration some someone comes in and these are separate mm. and really the goal of therapy is sort of integration and mm. also resolution of trauma mm. so what we thought we might do is we might actually just wind it back a little bit and talk about dissociation as a construct because I was saying to Amy before the show that I don't recall ever really being taught about dissociation. Mm. I, Which I, is a real problem. 
Yeah. It's, it's so like I, I wasn't taught about dissociation in the standard clinical program yep. or, you know, undergrad either. Yep. I only learn about it through doing like a specialised trauma postgrad mm. and it should be included in regular clinical training i think yep. because it comes up for so many people yeah and we're not kind of routinely told how to manage it what it is yeah anything like that yeah so i'm, I'm just going to get a little bit of weeds of it so i was going to start with the description from the dsm about it which broadly defines dissociation as a disruption or discontinuity in the normal integration of consciousness memory identity emotion perception body representation, motor control and behavior. So that's a bit wordy, but two other authors, Freeman and Lanus, described four dimensions of consciousness that in survivors of trauma either present as forms of distress associated with normal waking consciousness or present as dissociative trauma-related altered states of consciousness. So Mm -hmm. I think I found this kind of an interesting thing. So it talks about you can have a disruption in time and memory. So the classic one is a flashback right so you're like reliving an event that's occurred to you right so the classic one would be a soldier returns from war but Mm. he feels like he's he's right there in the thick of the fight yeah right for example the second dimension is thought right so this might be verbal thought so you might actually be hearing a voice and or experiencing a voice inside your head saying i hate you for example and that would be like a trauma trauma level, mm-hmm. trauma-related altered state of consciousness, right? The third dimension would, would be body or disembodied forms of distress. So this would be, this is not like increased heart rate mm. that you would get when you're anxious. This is like depersonalization, out-of-body experience. And then the last one would be emotion. So this would be marked emotional numbing and compartmentalized forms of emotionality as sort of dissociative states. Mm-hmm. So it kind of breaks it down for you. So one way to understand associations is altered state of consciousness or is a disruption or disintegration across the psychological faculties that give rise to normal waking consciousness, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Dissociation as a phrase is often also used. So that's kind of like dissociation as a, an event, mm. right? Or a sort of a, a state, Yep. right? And then dissociation is often talked about as a division of one's identity ego or sense of self mm. and it's, it, you've got to be kind of clear about when you're talking about dissociation which one you're actually talking about yeah. so you, you're going to talk about theory in the fight and flight and stuff like that is that right yeah okay so i don't, I don't want to talk about that so much so humans often freeze in the face of threat and we think that this is dissoci- associated with dissociation or but humans are capable of experiencing a range of dissociative phenomena that include absorption. So mm. like becoming so engrossed in a book yep. or a movie that you're not aware of one's surroundings, right? Mm. So that's not pathological. Mm. Or being unaware of time passing when staring into space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've even had it in therapy where you suddenly like you're so focused. And I've had many patients say to me, it's like, oh my God, was was that an hour? Mm. You know, that kind of thing. Really There's also that classic example of driving a route that you know really well. And then getting halfway there and kind of realizing you can't remember what's happened on the drive because yeah. you're just stuck in your own thoughts and it's that kind of oh, like... I get that in the supermarket, oh, I reckon. <laughs> what happened? Where am I? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Depersonalization. So that would be feeling disconnected from one's emotions or body. Mm-hmm. Derealization. So feeling detached from your own surroundings such that they seem familiar or at a distance or foggy. Amnesia. So that's, you know, fogginess or... 
you know, gaps in memory or identity alterations so feeling thinking and behaving so differently at different times that you feel or act as this almost as if you were a different person mm. so those are kinds of the different dimensions of yep. dissociation i guess would be a mm. a kind of thought and then the second last point i had was that the dissociation sort of exists on sort of a continuum mm. of of intensity but there also seems to be a subgroup or a dissociative taxon, mm. essentially, is what they would say. So people who just experience dissociation on a much, much higher level mm. is, is the way I understood the way this was written. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was that from the research evidence and the theories around it, there is a, there was sort of two competing theories around it. One is that people with dissociation are more prone to fantasy or more mm-hmm. suggestible. And then the other theory is that it's trauma as an antecedent. Mm. So trauma causes dissociation. Mm. And I read a long literature review on it, but basically, long story short, the evidence is overwhelming for trauma yep. as the antecedent. And there's very, very little evidence, basically none, mm. for fantasy mm. proneness to and suggestibility to be yeah. a driving force for Association. So trauma mm. seems to be very, very yeah, key, the key thing. Yeah, across all sorts of prospective studies and retrospective studies and all sorts of stuff like that. So it's even it even comes through in epigenetic studies around trauma. Yep. So epigenetics is about how your genes are expressed. Uh, so not whether or not you have a particular gene, but whether or not it's active or not. Yeah. And how what you inherit then predicts whether a gene's going to be switched on or not. So uh, mothers who have experienced trauma mm. then have kids who the switch for dissociation is on rather than off if the mother dissociated. So it's kind of like we're primed based on the experience of our mother in particular. Mm. So there are a whole bunch of biological kind of driving things that mm. make you more or less likely mm. to dissociate. Yeah. Uh, my favourite theory around it is Stephen Porges polybagel theory. Do you know much about it? No. It's delightful. I'll post a a link to an article where he explains it in an interview uh, on our show notes because some of the stuff that's out there that he's written is so technical and detailed that you can spend hours just sitting there trying to sift through a Mm. paragraph. But essentially it talks about why it is that we have two different types of physiological responses to threat. Well, three technically. So if you use the analogy of a bank robbery, where whenever it's shown in a TV show or movie or something like that, there's usually a few key ways that people in the bank robbery are responding. And that kind of matches the polyvagal theory. So there's the person trying to talk their way out of it. They're trying to like negotiate with the robber. That person's using their social engagement system. And it's the one that most most evolved and develops last and usually as adults or as teenagers is when we kind of get that going. Mm -hmm. Then there's usually someone who's running or trying to punch the bank robber. So that's fight or flight. Fight or flight or freezing and kind of like pressed up against a wall, heart pounding, sweating, that kind of thing. Not moving. Not moving but looking active. So muscles are tense, everything's sweating. That's one arm of the vagal system and that causes everything to activate so it's the adrenaline it's the sweatiness it's all of that sort of stuff it's everything about movement and getting the blood flow to your limb so that you can go places it's all that kind of focus and that's kind of in mammals 
and us, obviously. Uh, and then the next one down is the person who passes out when the robber comes in or who is completely dazed and no one seems to be able to wake them up. Like mm-hmm. they're trying to get them to move, sneak out of the bank and they're just sitting there completely numb to the world. Mm-hmm. That's the dissociation end. Or I like to use the term flop with kids because they kind of like, yeah, they prefer yeah. that. Um, and so that is found in the different branch of the vagal system. So there's kind of two branches. One activates everything, one shuts everything so down. So freeze is, not, is, is still active. Freeze is active. Okay. Yeah, so there's active freeze where your muscles are tense mm-hmm. and you're kind of rigid. Mm-hmm. And the strongest example I can think of this in work is that we had a alarm in the school that I was working in, a uh, lockdown, mm-hmm. and there was a kid who was pressed up against a pole in the playground and wasn't moving and when I went to move him I picked him up by his waist because I couldn't get him to move and he stayed rigid yeah right completely like nothing nothing Mm -hmm. moved as I carried him into the classroom actually that 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 fits me Mm. and that's interesting because like I'd read this and sort of thought it was there's fight and flight response and then there's the freeze response which is how it's always been talked about and I thought dissociation was sort of extreme freeze and that dissociation was this I guess essentially psychological escape from something that you can't physically escape from and that which you is know, what people use, like, yep. which is what it's always been talked yeah, about as. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and so the idea that freeze is a survival mechanism is because if you go still, mm. a predator that's attacking you yep. might lose interest because mm-hmm. there's something else that is moving that, that's getting your attention. Exactly. But you'll suggest this theory suggests different. So this theory suggests that then there's, so there's two branches to the system, yep. physiologically two nerve branches that yep. run down your body. One does all the activation. The dissociation side, it shuts everything off. So it slows down your heart rate. It slows down your breathing. It makes your body colder. It shuts off digestion. Everything's conserving energy to make you as still and as non-present as possible, essentially. And that's one that's shared with reptiles as well. So it's often called the reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. And essentially what happens is when there's danger... We start at the top with social engagement and we work our way down through what might be effective solutions. So if it seems possible to talk, we do. If that doesn't work, we drop down to fight, flight, freeze. If that doesn't work, we drop down to essentially play dead. And if you've had a lot of trauma and it's happened at a time when you've only had play dead, then your brain is wired to do what's the most reliable thing. And Mm. so it will just go straight to the bottom. It'll skip all the middle bits yeah so it's often tricky to explain say to parents who have gone well my kid's gone from lying on the floor not not moving when they're upset to punching me mm, but this is actually a positive and that's progress yeah 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 because the clients that i've had that have dissociated mm. what i've noticed is that they just looked like they weren't there mm. And that There's the kind of an absence and a floppiness. Yeah, and a yeah. And the one individual I'm thinking about, like it was kind of noticeable because that was not how she was mm. most of the time. Yeah, and so the way I brought her back was, uh, I'm going to use your name, Amy, mm. um, but be, I was just like, Amy, mm. Amy, you're here with Hunter. Yeah. You're in this suburb. You're safe, mm. you know, and repeat that until I came back. Yeah. Yeah, so it was like sort of connecting back with them. Back to the current yeah. thing. Yeah, but yeah, it's an interesting idea that it's two halves of the same system and it makes sense of the fact of why one of them has an opposite physiological effect to the other. It makes far more sense than lumping them all together and going... It's a a bit more nuanced, but I mean, I think if you... Yeah, like I think thinking about it as a fight, flight, freeze is not 
in act, no. right? It's and especially probably, because a lot of people will only go to the freeze yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it makes sense because like I, I froze in a, I worked in a drug and alcohol centre for a bit and in the first two weeks I witnessed a fight mm. and we all, the staff went into the into their area where there was trouble mm. and I just... I just didn't move, but mm. I wasn't, but I wasn't, I was conscious. I was yeah, you're aware, aware of what was happening. And I was, but I just didn't know what to do. So my yeah. brain just said, don't do anything. Yeah, right? just yeah. stay where so you are. So it was really interesting. Yeah. Mm. When I was looking for information about the background of dissociative identity disorder, particularly, you know, how it develops, things like that, how it presents, I guess, describing what it looks like in terms of an internal state, I found this amazing book. I only got one chapter in before I had to come here and record things. But it's by Bowlby's daughter, uh, which I just found amusing in and of itself. So, so people don't know, Bowlby mm. was a very famous psychologist yeah. who did stuff with attachment. Attachment, yeah. And he's most famously known for like an experiment with monkeys. Mm. And there was like a, a fur monkey, like a fake fur monkey mm. and a fake wire monkey. And they looked at which which one the baby monkey went to yeah preferred to to. it's it's awful it's heartbreaking but yeah anyway so this is his his yeah yeah, his daughter lady xenia bulby which is an amazing name and she's written a it's a collection of essays by people who live with dissociative identity disorder Mm -hmm. and from their own kind of perspective of you know how they were diagnosed or different things that they were dealing with at the time. So it's called Living with the Reality of Dissociative Identity Disorder, Campaigning Voices by Lady Xenia Bowlby. In terms of the development, as we've mentioned, it tends to come from childhood trauma and it's something that people believe develops as a strategy for coping with trauma. So essentially, when someone's experiencing something traumatic, they might separate parts of themselves through dissociation so that one part experiences the trauma and the other part can continue to function. Mm. So one part can go through all of that and then the other part can still manage to go to school, can still play, can do whatever and not actually have to remember what happened. And so it's quite a, um, you know, an adaptive in a way strategy. It increases the chances that they'll survive yeah they'll be able to cope yeah and i read one study and they talked about that extending that theory more Mm. it's about trauma particularly trauma that has been caused by caregiver or someone close so just like i mean i know trigger warning around this kind of stuff but sexual abuse by a Mm. family member Mm. by like a father or a sibling yeah and that being able to dissociate would mean that you could then still keep a relationship with that person, mm. which would then increase your survival advantage, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so a lot of time like a lot of the trauma that they've linked to this disorder tends to be sexual trauma or ritualistic. So things where it's built almost into the structure of the family, where this is just a part of how things how things go. It's not yeah. treated as anything unusual. It doesn't have to be Sexual abuse, it can be physical. It can be physical as well. well. Yep. And what they've found is that, say a traumatic event happens once and the person has good attachment style to their parents, to other caregivers, and they have enough support, they're more likely to develop PTSD or mood symptoms rather than dissociative identity disorder. Mm. The issue is when it's repeated and they have a disorganized attachment to 
a parental figure and then it means that being whole kind of isn't isn't a safe thing it's better to be fragmented it's safer Mm -hmm. so for anyone who has listened to the pod before you know that we've talked about disorganized attachment again and again but just as a brief thing essentially it's when you don't feel safe with an attachment figure receiving comfort or seeking support from them but you also don't feel comfortable when they go away so it's neither situation is comfortable or ideal Mm -hmm. you get anxious when they're approaching or when they're leaving and so it's quite chaotic and it's often seen for children who have had abusive parents where they've alternated between caring for them and then harming Mm -hmm. them or neglecting them or yeah yeah, that sort of thing yeah I, i read something about people can dissociate through a traumatic event but it's when that dissociation doesn't resolve mm. post that that's when they're at high risk of developing a dissociative disorder so exactly. are, there are other disorders of dissociation yeah. out there yeah yeah disorder. so it's kind of not just about what's traumatic but the context around the trauma as well and so it's not just that something was traumatic it was that there wasn't a safe person to recover with afterwards so in terms of the structure, the personality structure of someone with dissociative identity disorder, there tends to be what's termed host. Is that the language that you found no. in the literature? No, what I did you find? That. Or a core personality? Okay. Yeah, that sort of thing. And so usually that's the identity that seeks help and who the client views as themselves. Like kind of this is this is me. They have control most of the time, but there can be two or more hosts. That kind of, you know, job share, <laughs> for want of a better word. Then there are alters. So these are the fragmented parts that have sort of broken off from the host. And so an alter is defined as, as an entity with a firm, persistent and well-founded sense of self and characteristic and consistent pattern of behaviour and feelings in response to given stimuli. It must have a range of emotional responses and a significant life history of its own existence. So it may not have a life history that includes the host or other alters, but it's got it's got its own. The alters all view themselves as separate people and they don't understand that they share a body or a part of a whole for the most part. Mm-hmm. There tends to be a few different types of alters. There's, there's a whole sort of rainbow of different sorts that could be out there, but they tend to clump into three types. One is the child alters who tend to be locked in the time frame when they were created. So they're kind of small, fragile looking, frightened. They need to be addressed in an age appropriate way. So if they're six, that's how you need to speak to them. And so then there are persecutor and violent alters. And these ones function to silence the other identities if they try and talk about the trauma. So they often want to kill off the host or another alter but they don't realise that that means that they'll die too. So often there's control strategies and ways of threatening the other alters so that they feel frightened of this dominant persecutory alter. And it can lead to self-harm because they're trying to harm the Mm. other parts. So there's a high rate of suicide and self-harm in this population with 70% of outpatients with DID attempting suicide at least once. Yeah. So, I mean, just through that, you get a real flavor of just how, for want of a better word, dysfunctional Mm. or just how difficult uh, this condition would be for an individual. Absolutely. Even just negotiating 
those two. Yeah, I mean, that, I, you know, and just that makes me just filled with uh, empathy. That would be so difficult for Absolutely. you to have to experience. Mm. Yeah. And then the third group tend to be called helper vultures. And they initially present as lacking control or influence, like they're just kind of there. But then these parts tend to gain confidence through therapy and then serve a protective function as therapy progresses. So mm. they're often the ones who are able to stand up to the persecutory mm. alters and protect the child or protect yep. the host. Yep. So the other concept that I think will come up a few times as we talk about this is switching. So switching is going from one alter to the other, yep. being sort of the the altar that is in control of the body and in control of what's happening or switching back to the host. Most commonly occurs when triggered, but it can also occur in therapy if an altar wants to speak to the therapist or wants to interrupt, stop yep. things, that sort of thing. Signs of switching include facial changes, changes in gaze, a single rapid movement of the head, blinking rapidly, changes in speech such as loudness, tone, accent, vocabulary. It's also shown by seeming to daydream, losing track of conversation, using the word we instead of I, demonstrating conflictive interpersonal patterns, so going from like really submissive to then all of a sudden aggressive. And then alters can sometimes dress differently. They can have different mannerisms, preferences, postures, mood. They can like like different stuff. Just the case example that you said, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it's quite a – it's a complex thing, but it kind of – it's one of these things where it really makes sense to me how that would be functional and helpful. Yeah. And I can see how it would develop, that it's sort of... I it think what's interesting is that it persists. Yeah. I think, so, I, you know, I, I could sort of see how it would be helpful initially. Mm. And what's interesting to me is that it persists mm. and persists for decades. Which is often the case with a lot of the mental health you know, issues that we deal with it's often like a response to something initially that it made sense to be anxious or it made sense to be yeah but it's so to avoid ex- but it's so extreme it's extreme though and perhaps that's around the lack of awareness of the different alters and yeah, stuff like that how sometimes much how much occurred. yeah so you're going to talk about that kind of switching and fragmenting yes i am awesome do, i am going to do that but before i do Two Strings Pod would also like to give a plug this episode to listennotes.com. If you are searching for a new podcast to listen to, first of all, don't search now, like finish this episode. And, and the then, previous 47. And then the previous 47. And then, then you can go to listennotes.com, which is the internet's best podcast search engine. And you can search podcast topics easily from your computer or phone. And you can subscribe to the shows in any way you like. It's got trending topics or you can search by genre. So I had a look today and had business, comedy, crypto, fitness, movies, politics, and of course, true crime. That Are we in crypto? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> depends on how dense, <laughs> how dense <laughs> some of the feedback has that we're a little dry. Right. Um, the, uh, yeah, you can even listen to True Shrinks pods and get recommendations for similar podcasts. Listen to FYI, don't listen to those other psychology ones, just... Just us on repeat. Just us on repeat. That's listennotes.com. Beautiful. So I'm going to continue on in the same vein. And I'm going to actually just talk about a research study by M. Rose Barlow and James Chua in uh, 2014 in the European Journal of Psychotraumatology. Mm-hmm. It's titled Measuring Fragmentation in DID, the Integration Measure and Relationship to Switching and Time in Therapy. So right on what you're talking about. So they use the term alternate identities, which have 
like what Amy was saying, the quality of separate individuals there. But they're not completely separate from hmm. each other. You know, it's argued that they're discrete states of consciousness that are demonstrably dissociated from each other. Different respiration rates mm-hmm. and muscle tone, different neural activation mm-hmm. and cerebral blood flow between, I just find between alternate individuals. I find that so fascinating that it's not just that someone would behave differently, but yep. that their physiology would change. Yep. It's bizarre. Yeah. And so they talked about like this like fragmentation of information storage may only occur when that information is personally relevant. Mm. So like relevant to that alter, right? Mm. Otherwise, it would actually perhaps be more generally accessible. Actually, if I think about the... The person I worked with, she was able to talk about general locations, general knowledge, understanding of systems and things like that was the same across different parts. Yeah. But where she'd been born was different. Yeah, for yeah. Example. That makes sense. Yeah. So this theory is that switching alternate identities between them is, is a strategy used to block out ongoing awareness mm-hmm. of unwanted information or, like you were saying, to not talk about something, mm. right? And they may, these responses may help regulate responses, potentially frightening information. So I guess mm. really the theory in this is that it serves a function, mm. even though it seems very, very disordered and seems potentially random. It has internal logic. It has an internal logic, right? And there, there's studies that started to show that effective treatment leads to integration, which is this idea sort of somewhat apparently controversial idea of fusion Mm. of all the identities into one personality but it's like a long and often subtle process and associated with decreased symptoms uh, over time including lower dissociation and just sort of like what I thought was interesting is it came up a couple of times the things I read was that a couple of the authors were making the point that treatment for DID is helpful Mm. And they seem to be making this point over and over again. And uh, I obviously hadn't read some much about it before, but it made me think that there was a lot. Of, there was an argument for against treatment for mm. DID. Interesting, because like it's very rare that you would say say treatment for depression works, mm. right? It's more a question of like this How? treatment. This treatment is better than the other mm. treatment, right? Not so, the base argument that this is something that should be treated yeah. and it's, that's a good yeah. thing. So I thought that was interesting, but. The the other important point that I kept getting was its treatment is long mm. and treatment is complicated and even for experts. Mm. And that was, I think, that was explicitly stated. So these authors wanted to develop a tool to look at the changes between identities. So this is a, a study to build upon qualitative reports of you know, switching and fragmentation to try and get a tool that you could use as a clinician or even as a researcher. And I thought this study was sort of interesting because it gets at some of these concepts. So past studies would get DID participants to switch mm-hmm. at a particular time. Okay. They'd be like, Amy, we want you to switch to um, Frederica. Yeah. Or I don't know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Whomever. Okay. Right. She's disinterested in recording the podcast. <laughs> okay. That's it. She's strangely going to buy gin. Um, the, uh, um, but this limits the the studies to a group of patients with DID who can do this mm. and these who can do that on cue do that on cue mm. and in some cases they might say change change to a different altar or be changed to a particular altar mm. right and so these authors are saying well you know maybe that limits the generalizability so what they they chose a different approach so in this study and i imagine that that would also limit it to people who had already begun treatment or already had sort of some understanding of what it was that they had mm. 
to mm. even even begin to consider yeah. that yeah. there was other parts of themselves yeah, qu- to switch to? Quite possibly, right? Mm. So in this study, they had 11 women with mm-hmm. DID, mean age of 35, hospitalized mean time of 3.6 times, on average been in therapy for 12 years. Wow. Which is a long time. Mm. Participants attended two sessions. So the first one was video recorded for later coding and in it they did some cognitive tests for another study and they were not given instructions to switch alternate identities. Mm -hmm. And some switched quite visibly, right? And 10 out of the 11 reported switching. And so they would stop speaking, blink, look around and then speak in a different tone of voice, for example. Mm. In the second session, what they did was they had the second session in the same room that they had been in the first time and they did it in the couple of days post it was a little bit variable but it was in basically a couple of days post and they the second session purpose was to collect reports of what they had experienced Mm -hmm. and then get them to complete this measure okay right so they were reminded of each task that the cognitive test that they did and for each the participant reported which identity completed the task Hmm. and whether the other identities were watching or listening internally or if they'd switched Hmm. they then completed the dissociative experiences scale Mm. which is a very commonly used scale i think it's a 28 item scale it assesses different types of dissociative experiences which i think i'm going to get a copy of because i think it's interesting yeah i think that might actually be useful to have and they're not like all of the experiences aren't necessarily traumatic like they're things like the car example of driving somewhere and then going what happened yeah and just as a side note like it made me realize that there's this subgroup of ptsd that's dissociative Mm. it's like up to 30 percent of people with ptsd and thinking that next time i get someone who got ptsd i'm gonna give them this scale Mm. because i think it'd be interesting anyway and they also did uh they also had a scale the brief betrayal scale which distinguishes between interpersonal trauma inflicted by someone who the victim was close to that's betrayal trauma and the same trauma committed by not close perpetrators Mm. for example but what i was talking about before and then they also had them to complete this new integration measure so the results were interesting i've got to say with 11 participants i the statistician in me is sort of wary about how strongly you would want to read into these results. Yeah, but it's a small I, sample. The small because the small sample, you know, if you got ten more participants, that could change the results quite significantly. But mm. it is very, very interesting, and I think with a clinical sample, you have to look at any research that's there, especially for something as rare as oh this. You're God, not going to yeah. find large-scale studies no, like no. you would for depression or no, something like God, that. No, God, yeah. no. So, or, I mean, even cancer patients, yeah. there's, there's a lot of them. And, mm. yeah. So, so the sample had dissociative scores and trauma scores much higher than the normal adult population, as mm-hmm. you'd expect. They switched in session uh, an average of 5.8 times. Wow. Um, and the range was 0 to 12 of mm. that. And the relationship between switching and dissociation scores, well, there was a 0.3 two correlation Mm -hmm. childhood high betrayal and lifetime betrayal trauma was positively correlated with switching so basically what that means is if you'd had more trauma Mm. you were more prone to switching in Mm. this session did you say it was the betrayal trauma rather than the other trauma Uh, i don't have that okay Okay. um switching was not correlated with the number of years in therapy Mm -hmm. which kind of makes sense to me in that Mm. you might be in therapy for a long time because you might actually be more I don't know, like the length of time of being in therapy might not really relate to anything. No. So 
trauma they they said that trauma was related to integration but it was a correlation point two two mm. uh, i would say that's not a relationship no. but i think you know with more data you might actually see that integration didn't seem to be associated with years in therapy but more complex trauma could stay in therapy longer mm. so you might not see a relationship the number of switching in session and integration mm-hmm. on the measure showed a u-shape pattern okay huh. So, people who are very fragmented may report switching precisely because they're very fragmented, mm. right? They do a lot of it because they're sort of... They're, Chopping and changing. They're worse off, essentially. Mm. And very integrated DOD patients would mm. be the other side of the U. They would report it because they've got increased integration that would lead to greater awareness of the switching, mm. right? Okay, whereas, whereas the one in the middle would... Yeah. They're, they're less fragmented, yeah. but they're less aware mm. would be... So they wouldn't report it. Yeah. yeah. And they thought that they might also be able to fit a cubic pattern, which would also potentially fit with mm. this, this model, this idea. But, I mean, again, fitting regression line to 11 people, mm. like, Not you so know, much. you definitely would want more data before running to the bank with those mm. things. But um i thought it was an interesting interesting study Absolutely. and fascinating that someone that you would get a group of people with dd and they would switch just doing something that shouldn't be particularly distressing yeah like which i think is the interesting thing that it can be just day-to-day tasks or it can be something traumatic yeah it's yeah you can imagine how much disruption that would cause yep. all the time absolutely mm. so where are we going now uh, so I looked into issues in therapy. I was thinking about when I had that client and about the advice that, that I was given and about what else was out there in terms of the issues that come up in therapy and how to ask questions, how to suss this out, yeah, essentially. Because we do want to be not just interesting but useful for mm, people. Exactly. As we've mentioned before, the aim of therapy is integration and coordination between identities. So it might not be that everybody sort of merges together into one personality but that everyone has sort of a good awareness of what everybody else is doing that it's not like one person goes off and and does something and then the others are unaware so in terms of assessments the question that stuck with me most from speaking to the specialist about this pops into my head whenever I consider this and it was an interesting question that I would never phrase this way of my own accord but it made a lot of sense the question was what age was the body when you were formed? So the logic with this is that alters don't develop all at one time. They develop at different points in time. And it's no use saying how old were you. You need to actually link it to a physical thing like the body. And so someone like the person I worked with would kind of go, when I asked that question, she'd go 12 or something like that. So the body was 12. The body was 12 when I came to be. Yeah. Yeah. Which is quite an odd way of asking a question. Mm. But Because I I would have thought you would ask, how old are you? Mm. Well, the problem is some of them, some of the alters age, some don't. So some, so like the child alters can stay locked at seven. Wow. Yep. So if they were formed at seven, they can stay at seven or they can... Yeah. Shift. So would you ask what age were you formed and are you still at are you still that age or what would you I would I would ask about how old she was now. Yeah. And I'd at some points kind of because it was right the initial thing where I was trying to figure out whether this was something or not, I'd feign a little bit of forgetfulness and kind of go, 
what nickname did you prefer to go by or something like that so then I'd get the range of names mm. but yeah the what age was the body when you were formed also then helped me to track who was who because they were all at different ages mm. and it and it mapped the questions that I found in some of the sort of treatment guides for this were around things like have you lost time you know how much have you lost how often when does this happen uh, you know, have you found yourself just coming to somewhere and not knowing how you got there? Those kind of things around gaps. Mm. They also recommended the same questionnaire, the Dissociative Experiences Questionnaire, which involves rating a percentage of time that something happens. The point with that was the, that it needs to be administered at the right time. You can't do it when someone's too dysregulated or when they're not ready to consider whether there's dissociation playing a part in what's going on for yep. them because otherwise you're going to flood things and you're going to get switching. Yeah. So sort of right time for all of these questions. The other one was the somatoform dissociation questionnaire, the SDQ20, which was interesting. And it was about that there are somatic symptoms that go with dissociation and re-experiencing and that often people are more willing to acknowledge those things than they are to this kind of cognitive part of dissociation. So it's things like, you know, I feel like I'm paralyzed for a little while or I have trouble urinating, those kind of things that show a disconnection from the body mm-hmm. and people are far more you know, willing to talk about those things mm. than the cognitive thing of feeling like they're not quite there. Yeah. Yeah. And that questionnaire asks about the experience and then asks whether the physical cause is known or not to rule out if there's a medical thing. The focus in therapy initially needs to be around strengthening the host so that then they can cope with the trauma that each one of the alters wants to share and wants to communicate. So that core identity has to be strong enough to be able to um, have coping strategies that aren't switching before you can actually open things up with the others treatment can include all sorts of different things that you would do in trauma treatment grounding so sort of thing of getting people to connect with where they are what's going on distraction visualizing things using things that are comforting promoting discussion and communication between the alters Mm -hmm. taking responsibility so (laughs) the example i really liked which was that an alter can't get absolutely blind drunk and then switch out so that the host has the hangover. (laughs) You have to find an agreement where you have to take responsibility for your own (laughs) behaviour, which I loved that. That's that's a fantastic idea. (laughs) But but also that's a really tangible way of describing it, isn't Mm, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and lots of psychoeducation. So that kept on coming up again and again. So teaching people about the disorder and about having different aspects of themselves Mm. and what that might mean. Mm. And doing all of those kind of things before you can then jump into trauma work. Actually processing what's happened on a whole bunch of, of different levels cognitively physically whatever in terms of challenges as probably people have picked up as we've been talking the fragmentation and memory gaps really can disrupt the flow of treatment (laughs) it's hard to continue something over multiple sessions when it might not be the same person over multiple sessions it might be a different part or a different sort of alter and then within a session people can switch and so actually having that continuity particularly with the memory gaps is quite difficult Um, In the case study that I spoke about earlier, the treatment team began taking notes that the client signed 
in each session so that then when they came back the next time and they might be a different altar, they could then look at their own signature or one of the altar's signatures and know that that actually fit with what happened because there was a lot of distrust that the staff were making things up because they didn't have a memory of the session. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, it didn't happen. Yeah, because in, in the... S- in the paper I talked about this before, mm. they videotaped it mm. and they said, oh, you could look at the video if you wanted to. I think all but only a handful said no. Nah. <laughs> yeah. Because it, be, it would be jarring going oh, back to appointments. Yeah. And that's certainly the thing I found that, you know, I'd say, how's that thing going that we talked about last week? And the response would be, we didn't talk about that last week. Yeah, how, how do you know about how that? How do you know about it? Yeah. yeah. So the idea is that then it's handwritten and because the handwriting can change it's then identifiable to that one thing and kind of clarifies what what the story is so one of the things that kept on coming up was that clinicians can question whether someone's lying because their story is so inconsistent over Mm. time our natural inclination is to kind of go that doesn't match what you said last time and i think therapists can be because we are so much about trust, mm. right? And we can be somewhat paradoxically thin-skinned yeah. about patients who change their story mm. because I think we're used to people telling us the real story. Mm. and So it throws us. And like all of us know not only what's going on with our patients, but we'll often know a whole lot of the inside story about what's going on in whatever centre you work mm. in. <laughs> yeah. People tell you stuff. People tell you stuff, yeah. And Whether so, you ask or not, they and just so when that, when that doesn't happen to you, you get a bit frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not how it's supposed to go. <laughs> um, some of the other challenges are maintaining boundaries when there's a high level of distress and risk. So when you've got someone who is quite agitated and who might be self-harming or suicidal, it's easy to kind of let those things blur to, you know, have more sessions or to do things to check in on them to make sure that everything's okay. So that was kind of a trap that a couple of the authors mentioned, worrying about that, that, saying don't do that, that you've got to still maintain boundaries. The other one that I found interesting was balancing the altar's need for time in session. <laughs> yep. That the session might be, they might keep on trying to push the session to go longer because one altar hasn't had a chance to say what they need to say yet. Yeah, right. And so needing to make sure that you allocate equitably wow. the time in the session, which Jeez. is fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also like a lot of comorbidity mm. between, well, obviously PTSD would be a primary mm. one, but I think borderline personality. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and substance use yeah. and stuff like that. And from what I read, the use of medications mm. like... Uh, antidepressants, antipsychotics, anxiolytics, like they're not used as a primary. No. So they might be used as an adjunct. Mm. Help manage the Help stress. manage some of the other symptoms, but this, the therapy that the therapy is talking the about is, is, the, is, is the way. Yeah, absolutely. And part of that kind of, you know, the substance stuff and medication and things like that, working with that is to help, you know, manage distress and so that there, aren't, there isn't so much switching. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah because that's... You want to avoid unwanted switching in session. There might be times when it's relevant or when one of the altars has something that they need to say, but you don't want someone to be so distressed or so easily triggered that then they're switching all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last thing was around that often the altars have conflicting beliefs about treatment 
or comfort with where they're at. Mm. So there might be one alter who's ready for trauma work and they're comfortable with the idea of talking about it, they're good to go. But another might want to punish that part or, you know, for trying to disclose or trying to work on things or might not be ready yet and keeps on shutting things down. So it was kind of a lot about checking in with each part about what their objections were to trauma work before you even started. Mm. and continuously checking that and going, does anyone have any problem with us talking about this thing? Mm. And if so, dealing with that problem first mm. because otherwise that alters going to interrupt things. Yeah, I mean, so it fits with just general trauma work, but you just like this like a lot more mm. groundwork. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah, before you can even get to that part of things. it's And, and what I read was the treatment approach that works mm. is it has to be DID focused. Yeah. Just going for trauma itself won't, do um, it. won't have nearly the same effectiveness. I actually saw one article that was written decades ago that was by Bowlby saying that treatment for DID should be like group work where you have to manage the group dynamic. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of, it was one of those things of sitting there and kind of going, that sort of makes sense. You've got to manage the interaction between people as well as between you mm. as the therapist and the clients. Mm. You're holding this group of people that have a relationship, but that relationship might not necessarily be healthy, I, I can emotional. imagine you fascinating but also quite frustrating work because hmm. I know working in the hospital, every hospital I worked in, we have these overhead announcements. Mm. So you'll be having conversation and then suddenly you're, code blue <laughs> code blue like and it comes across and it completely can completely throw your mind if you're mm. focusing on something most of the time you're you're all right like mm. you, you know, but for a client like but this. like but like but that's but what you're describing is like that on another level mm, absolutely <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> um so why don't we go to our final uh quickly run through a final topic yep sounds good and then we'll go for a break so please um please stick with us so the paper i'm going to talk about is by bethany brand and colleagues in psychological trauma theory research practice and policy in 2019 it's called detecting clinical and simulated dissociative identity disorder with a test of memory malingering this study details a trial of a memory test to determine whether it can discriminate between individuals with did and those have been coached to simulate DID. And I think what was interesting was when DID was first described, multiple personality disorder was first described, then there was this huge uptick in people presenting with it mm -hmm. and essentially sort of malingering, okay. right? And kind of there's a lot. And so there's been a lot of disbelief around it as mm. well. Amnesia is this hallmark symptom of DID and some people may malinga pretend that they've got this condition because if they believe that if their behavior is attributable to dissociative identity disorder say when they were committing a crime they were dissociated they might get reduced sanctions for okay. example yeah. right yeah. so can we determine this how mm. do we do this determining malingering versus true did is complicated by the fact that personality tests some personality tests like the personality assessment inventory, include mm. dissociative symptoms on their validity in clinical scales. Mm. So to tell you what I mean by that, so there's a range of tests, psych psychological tests out there, such as the PAI, the personality assessment inventory, and the MMPI, which is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory 2, that assess clinical symptoms. So that might be anxiety, stress, you know, trauma, 
depression, bipolar mm. symptoms, whatever, right? That they're clinical scales. And then some tests have what's called validity scales, which are really, really interesting. So these scales assess the validity of the test. So whether someone is faking bad, mm. so they're exaggerating their symptoms, say for compensation, mm. right? Or they're faking good, so they're downplaying mm. their symptoms. And so what you'll have is a couple of scales on a questionnaire that people will answer these questions and if you're trying to show that you're worse off than you are, mm. you'll tick these responses when actually they've been designed and shown that even in really, really severe populations, those severe populations wouldn't score mm. that highly. So, for example, one on the MMPI for the faking good is something like, uh, I have never lied. Yep. Or I've never stolen anything yeah. when actually studies show that people, most people have stolen something small mm. value at yeah. some point. Yeah. Right. And the MMPI is an interesting one because it, it has, what, seven different validity scales? Yeah, it's scales, really, really so useful. Yeah. So, essentially, you can look at these scales and see whether someone's answered it in a valid way. Now, so if a validity scale includes dissociative symptoms, mm. then... So the negative impression management scale on the PAI includes items of loss of memory or multiple personalities, mm. then someone DRD would have an elevated score. Mm. And so you would potentially think that... They were faking. Yeah, 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 or that they were giving an inaccurate impression. And the MMPI apparently is effect, relatively effective in dis- distinguishing the two groups, mm-hmm. but up to 15% can have elevated validity scores scores on some of the validity scales okay um, so it could be misdiagnosed so you know there's sort of interest in being able to do this mm. so they wanted to use the test of the memory malingering so it appears to be a test of visual memory you do two trials mm-hmm. you presented with 50 line drawn images for three seconds which makes me think of ghostbusters <laughs> <laughs> like, what's this one it's a couple of wavy lines Yep. Uh, anyways, <clears throat> so you, you're given 50 images and shown them for three seconds each. And then you're shown 50 panels that contain two images, one you've seen before and one you haven't. And you get a point for each item correctly identified. And the second trial is exactly the same. The maximum score is 100. It's actually a test of a lack of cognitive effort. It hmm. gives the impression of being difficult, but it's actually relatively easy to s- achieve a perfect or near-perfect score. Okay. So it encourages feigners to underperform. And people with real cognitive deficits, such as, such as the traumatic brain injury, intellectual disability, dementia, aphasia, can obtain an average of 45. Okay. Correct. Right. So if someone scores below 45, it indicates a, a lack of effort uh, yeah. or possible malingering. Yeah. So, the use in traumatized populations is limited, but generally they think that those high in dissociation are not more likely to exaggerate memory difficulties than low in dissociation. Mm. So, they got 31 DID patients mm-hmm. from inpatient outpatient clinics, no known reason to be feigning their disorders, and they gave them the skid to confirm uh. the diagnosis. That's like a structured Sorry. clinical... I had an involuntary, <laughs> involuntary <laughs> reaction. Amy, Amy come back to me. She's I can't, just I can't, I can't, um, I can't. So, and that was conducted. There's just so many pages and all the numbers are the same for the pages and the <laughs> items and the sections. And it says go to 2.2, yeah, but that could be 2.2 question or 2.2 page. <laughs> just, just breathe. <sighs> You're in Melbourne. Anyway, and they had 74 university students that had been coached on the symptoms of DID. 
and they were told to respond on the test like they had DAD. So they were, weren't told okay. to behave like they had DAD, like yeah. in the room. Respond as if you did. But yeah. respond as if you did, right. And prior to that, they had to do a test on the symptoms of DAD and pass it to be included right. in the study. So they had to make sure that they knew what the symptoms were. Yeah. 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 So they're both given the memory test and they found for both trials that the DAD patients scored higher than the students faking it. The average for simulated was below the cutoff for malingering. Mm-hmm. And the test correctly identified 81% of malingerers in trial one and 73% in trial two. So that's pretty, pretty good. good. Yeah. So do you want to know sensitivity specificity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so sensi- sensitivity of a test is the test correctly identifies with a condition. So true mm-hmm. positive rate. So if high, there's few false positive. That was 78 and 64 specificity which is quickly identifying those without so a true negative rate was mm-hmm. higher at 87 and 97 mm. do you want to know positive predictive power and negative predictive power oh, of course I <laughs> look do. at you getting all excited <laughs> um 94% 98% for positive predictive power so that's the probability mm-hmm. they have the disease and the probability they don't have the disease that they weren't lingering was lower 63 over 53% so good at so the test is good at picking up malingerers. Mm. So if they scored low, you'd be confident that they're malingering. Probably how you would put it. Nice. If they scored high, you you, you might you'd be less confident. Anyway, so essentially, participants faking DAD were more likely to answer that they had memory deficits on this test, and that the scale performs as well or better than other standardised measures of feigning studied so far. They did sort of suggest that the you know the limitation would be that the university students as a comparison group, but they're pretty smart and might be more sophisticated in terms of malinger. But they didn't coach them about test taking, and so just about the disorder. About the disorder, authors sort of conclude around that it could be a useful test in helping identify DID, and you know the, anything that helps people diagnose this condition and accurately do that, and then get those people treatments, going to improve those people's lives and going to reduce costs to absolutely the mental health system so nice i like that kind of creative approach to it that it's kind of coming at things from a different angle yeah Mm. yeah and kind of gets at kind of some of the interesting complexities so we really hope you've uh, enjoyed that rather lengthy chunk of information and stick around we're going to take a break we'll be back with things we came across after the break Try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see. As it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call laws instead of simple explanations. So which lolly are you going to go first? I'm going to... You've got Sour Patch Kids. Yeah. Sour Bright Crawlers. Yeah. Uh, we've got Smarties, which are not chocolate covered. They're sour. Or you've got these uh, sour something. watermelon sharks. I think I have to go for a shark. Uh, you're going to regret that. Am I? Have you <laughs> had them? <laughs> oh, yeah. How no. sour are they? Uh, no, they're not that sour. They're just an odd taste. So Amy currently okay. is having a sort of like a two centimeter long pink and green shark shaped lolly covered I in sugar. I think you know that I would more describe it as jet shaped. Yeah, it does look like a jet as well. Mm. So the reason we're uh, having some sour lollies, I'm going to let Amy just digest, just reflect on that. 
was a couple of podcasts ago, We Amy was talking about <laughs> sour tastes and mm. how you use sour lollies to keep people from dissociating in session. That is correct. Yeah. And so with, with Two Shrinks Pod, you can contact us on uh, Two Shrinks Pod at gmail.com mm. or on Twitter. At and two we'll sh- give you Hunter's address. At, <laughs> at Two Shrinks Pod. So you can follow us on Twitter at Two Shrinks Pod. And Charlesy from Athens, Georgia, very kindly contacted us mm. and sent us a box of sour um, sour candy or lollies, as we correctly call them in Australia. I don't think those ones are particularly sour. No, but they are an interesting shall taste. I, shall I move on to the next? Yeah, try try the Smarties. Those. Okay. So in Australia, Smarties are like a like a small like an M M&M and M basically, but they are not. They're interesting. We call them. We call them something. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, so Charlesy very kindly sent us this box of um, sour lollies because we were talking about how some of the American lollies are more sour than Australian lollies. She also sent us some graham crackers so we can make some s'mores, which I'm quite excited about. Anyway, she um, she very kindly, she provided this description for us. She said, I wish I had a video of myself at the post office with a nice postal worker who helped me figure out exactly how many pieces of candy could go in the box before shipping, before the price doubled. He was like, are those graham crackers? You're mailing graham crackers and candy to Australia? Take that lemon head out and see if it makes a difference. <laughs> he was an older black man with, who was congenitally missing three fingers, which is neither here nor there, but gives you a better mental snapshot of the scene you were causing. The people behind me in line were much less amused, but myself and the post worker got a good laugh. Well, I quite like those ones. <laughs> the lady sending some documents behind me commented on all the candy I had all over the place sending, saying someone would be happy... Mr. Postman declined my offer of the remaining candy, but said he appreciated the offer anyway. <laughs> so, Charlesy, thank you so much for mm. sending it. I'm going to try some Sour Patch Kids things that look... It says two flavors in one, and Amy's going to tell us about our website. Oh, yeah. We have a website. And on this website... It's <laughs> <laughs> sour. Hunter is... Um, mm, blinking a lot and wincing and um, fanning his face like a lady in Victorian England. (laughs) On our website, you can find all of our episodes and you can find things sorted by topic. So you can find if you want a specific rattling of sour worms, if you want a specific things we came across topic or if you're looking for a podcast that's on a particular disorder have a look we've got them all there you can find out more stuff about us and you can find links on how to contact us so it's two shrinkspod.com that's it that's it i'm gonna have one of these ones that made you watch my left eye (laughs) it's the one that twitches when i have something that's too sour there we go she's chewing she's chewing no, I think she's holding it in. She's all right. <laughs> no, there it goes. And we're back from the break. Amy has uh, recovered. Uh, I don't, can I try this one first no, before yeah, yeah. we do? They're, they they're, they're much more tolerable. Yeah. This is a part of the show called Things We Came Across. 
Uh, we can do a quick one because we've been talking for so long tonight. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, they're, they're totally... <laughs> do two or three of those. It'll mm. be fine. The um, things that came across. So this is the part of the show where we like to just talk about something that has caught our eye during the week, during the month and a half it has been since, <laughs> the last, since we last recorded. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that time, uh, we've had the recent change back to daylight savings mm. here, in, or daylight saving here in Australia. I don't mm. think it's plural. Which is great. <laughs> if you've got kids, yeah, it's super great. Now my children, one of my children, regularly likes to go to bed an hour later than normal. Hmm. Mind you, I do get it. I they don't wake me up at like five to six now. Okay, it's five to seven. So well, that's nice. So I was just like, I am currently a little bit angry with daylight savings. Sure, I used to really, really love it. Like you know, it's, I like in which way? In principle, uh, this way or the other way? Um. I I would like it this way, like because because it you know the the year is changing and mm. you get more time and it's actually quite nice. Mm. And then like the other way is good because you get just a little bit more time <laughs> that weekend. You get an extra hour yeah. sleep. Yeah. So do, how do you go with daylight saving? Fine, I I go okay, except that I've noticed that I'm waking up a little bit earlier, like half an hour earlier, and I'm waking up naturally before my alarm, whereas normally I set. 12 alarms at five minute intervals mm. and they gradually the vibration on each one gets stronger until eventually <laughs> i'm here she's here she's out yeah so i found this paper by christopher barnes and david wagner and says changing daylight saving time cuts into sleep and increases workplace injuries <laughs> <laughs> and i messaged this to a um a uh, barrister friend of mine because mm-hmm. she'd been angrily texting me about, <laughs> about daylight savings. And she texts back and says, I think I cited that in a case. Oh, no way. <laughs> so, uh, look, the authors examined the influence of time changes with daylight saving on sleep quality and associated workplace injuries. So, in the first study, they used a National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health database. Mm-hmm. And looked at injuries between 1983 and 2006, so 23 years. And they found with comparison with other days on the Mondays directly following the switch to daylight saving time, where one hour is lost, workers sustain more workplace injuries and and injuries of greater severity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In the second second study, authors used a different database for the 2003-2006 period and they found indirect evidence for the med- mediating role of sleep in daylight saving injuries relationship. Hmm. So, so more accidents because you're not sleeping. So work sleep on average 40 minutes less than other days on that Monday and on Mondays directly following the switch to standard time in which one hour is gained, there is no significant differences in sleep, injury quantity or injury severity. Nice. So there you go. You get more daylight but it's dangerous. It's a sort of... Warning for the age. <laughs> That's it. Wait. After reading those books where they used the example of one alter drinking and the other part getting the hangover, yep. I then wondered if there was anything on hangovers. Yep. Uh, there is. <laughs> <laughs> so I found something about cognition and mood Yep. after a normal night of drinking. So not... Over the top. Define normal. Well, so this is this is what's what's curious when we get there. <laughs> so this is going to be published in December this year. Mm-hmm. It's just online at the moment. 
and it's called Cognitive Performance and Mood After a Normal Night of Drinking, a Naturalistic Alcohol Hangover Study in a Non-Student Sample. <laughs> so it's by Devaney and colleagues in Addictive Behaviours Reports. And so what they did, you're looking Oh, I know, I'm just thinking concerned. that like the last pod, we, we did one on gym consumption in the yeah. library, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and now this time we're breaking out into the world, still drinking, yep. but yeah. So they recruited 45 participants from an Irish pub in the afternoon. It was in Ireland, so just a pub, perhaps. And they split the group into those with hangovers and those without. All of them had a blood alcohol content of zero. And they did this study in an office above the pub, which I worry why we don't have an office above a pub, but that's fine. And... (laughs) They got people to complete the acute hangover scale, demographic information, number of hours sleep, previous night's alcohol consumption, a mood scale, and then a bunch of cognitive tests, which included psychologist favorite, the Stroop test, mm-hmm. yep, which for people who don't know it, it's you're presented with a bunch of different words of like, names of colors, and they're colored either in the same colour as so the yellow, word so, so yellow the word yellow might be in green for yeah, example exactly or the opposite yeah and you have to say one or the other yeah it's sort of a reaction time Awful. processing different types of stimuli there was things on free recall working memory all of that sort of thing so hang on so were they already hungover? so half of the group had been drinking the night before yep half of the group had not yep yeah so and what time of day uh, early had afternoon. They had hot chips. Yeah, so it it was between eleven and three in the afternoon. They'd returned to the pub, so they all all of them had been drinking at the same pub. They'd returned to the pub to, to hang out with their the, friends. Just the crime. Yeah, but right. had not drunk anything. Right. So that was the thing. They both had to be sober. What do you think the average number of drinks consumed the previous night was? I'm going to say ten. Mm, you're low. <laughs> 15.4 was the average normal night of drinking in Ireland in a nice. pub. Nice. <laughs> so whether people had drunk or not, there was no significant difference in the amount of sleep. Yeah. They'd all been out partying at the Irish pub, but some had a meagre 15.4 drinks. <laughs> some did not. I'd love to know what the um, range. <laughs> oh, it wasn't it, like it... it the lowest was something like 10. Yeah. <laughs> like it wasn't yeah, yeah. one person having two and then yeah. someone else going ape. What <laughs> <laughs> you call a high floor. Yeah, exactly. <coughs> so as you would expect, hungover participants perform significantly worse on all cognitive measures. So the Stroop test, free recall, working memory, reaction times, everything was worse. They rated... The, uh, so the nachos far more <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> they were faster consuming chips than Exactly. <laughs> Their alertness was lower than the sober previous night non-drinkers. Yep. And their tranquility score was also significantly worse yep. than... Than those who hadn't drunk, each item on the mood scale was significantly <laughs> worse for the hungover. <laughs> they were having a bad day, and then they had to complete the stroop test. Oh. Yep. So essentially, you know, take it easy. Go back to the pub the day after you've been drinking, and just you know, have a soft drink, mm. eat some chips, 
Yeah, there's no motto really to that. It's just <laughs> hangovers mess with your brain. Yeah. When you have 15.4 drinks. <laughs> Science. It's science. It's naturalistic. It's perfect. That's it. So uh, that's the episode. <laughs> we will see you next time. Yeah, that's it for a topic yet to be determined. So if you liked the episode, please rate review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, podcast mm. app or listen notes. Mm. And, you know, tweet us, go to our website, email us, all of those things. Everything's at two shrinks pod so two shrinks pod.com two shrinks pod at gmail.com and twitter is at two shrinks pod send us pictures of your animals hunter loves it all lollies thank you very much for joining us we'll see you next time see ya